Consider Abraham. God granted Abraham an astonishing promise that he, in his old age, would have so many heirs, so many children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, that they would be more numerous than the stars in the sky. And then God demanded of him an impossible situation. God said to Abraham, take your son, your only son, your one and only beloved son, Isaac, and lay him on the altar and sacrifice him. It was a crisis, a problem, a divine demand. And how would he respond? Consider Moses. The first 40 years of his life, he lived life in his own strength and power. And then he killed a man. Subsequently, he ran for his life, putting himself in um, self-inflicted exile for another 40 years. And then he saw a burning bush, a bush that was burning yet was not burnt up. And God said to him, Moses, I want you to go back to the country from which you fled. And I want you to demand of the leader, Pharaoh, to let his entire slave force go free. It was a crisis, a problem, a divine demand. How would he respond? Consider King Ahaziah, the ninth king of the southern kingdom of Judah. He was faced with an army, the Edomites from the south, that were threatening to overthrow him. He counted his army and he knew he didn't have enough men. So he hired mercenaries to the tune of $2.3 million in today's currency. And then God sent his prophet to the king. And God said, let the mercenaries go home and forget about the money that you spent to secure their services. He still had this army that was threatening him. It was a crisis, a problem, a divine demand. What was he going to do? How was he going to respond to that? God sent his prophet to the king. Second Chronicles chapter 25. As these mercenaries were leaving, God said through his prophet, The Lord has much more to give you than this. The Lord has much more to give you than this. We all face difficulties, problems, crises, struggles, impossible situations, divine demands, How we respond says a great deal about our relationship with the Lord. Will we trust him? 
It says a great deal of how we view the Lord Jesus. This morning in our continuing study through the fourth gospel, the gospel of of John, we open chapter 6. Chapter 6 is is this wonderful chapter of of, of Scripture where we read um, verse 51. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Oh, we have wonderful verses to consider and think about in this chapter. As John opens this particular chapter, he sets up these kinds of statements that I just read by a miraculous event from the hands of Jesus. We, we call it the feeding of the 5,000. 5,000 men plus their wives plus children, probably upwards of 20,000 people. What we find here is a crisis, a problem, a divine demand that Jesus creates for his disciples. And we find two responses. One that is unacceptable. One that is faithless. And one that brings great pleasure to the Lord and the blessing of the Lord to many thousands of people. Read the text with me. John chapter 6. This is, this is the first of two miracles. The first of just two miracles by Jesus that are recorded in all four Gospels. There's only two. And this is the first. What's the second? Oh. All right. I guess you're going to have to read the rest of the text, the rest of the Bible. John chapter 6, beginning of verse 1. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with the disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him. For he himself knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, Uh, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in that place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. Jesus then took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those, he distributed to those who were seated. Likewise also the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments 
so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. I divided this section into four, um, four, uh, four points, and you'll find those in your notes. I encourage you to pull that out and follow along. Point number one, solution needed. Uh, verse 1 of chapter 6 opens up with this statement, after these things. It's n- not specific, um, but it tells us that there is something subsequent to what precedes it without giving us any indication of specific timing or any kind of immediacy. You'll notice in chapter 2, verse 13, that John says, this was the first Passover. Okay, so we have a a Passover celebration in chapter 2, verse 13, and of course that takes place in Jerusalem. Chapter 6, verse 4, in our text. Jesus is back in Jerusalem for yet another Passover. Now, if you remember, as we looked uh, for a few weeks at chapter 5, chapter 5, verse 1 tells us that there was a feast of the Jews, which probably was a national feast, one of the feasts required by the male Jews uh, to, uh, to attend, and they would have been in Jerusalem. Now, there are some scholars who say that that this particular feast in chapter 5 is another Passover. Chapter 5, verse 1, if if that's a Passover, means that there's a a, a year that goes by between chapters 5 and 6. Some scholars say that this particular feast in chapter 5, verse 1, was the Feast of Tabernacles. Um, which is possible, which would have been mean, which would mean that there is six months between what takes place in chapter five, which all takes place in, at one time, and the events in chapter six. Now that's significant for, for us because in verse two of our text, John writes that a large crowd followed Jesus. And here's the significance of, of looking at the feasts and, and trying to discern what, 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 the, what feast was it might maybe in, in chapter 5, verse 1. We don't specifically have to know. But the benefit of, of thinking, well, it might have been Passover, it might have been tabernacles, is to tell us that for a six-month period of time, maybe for a whole year period of time, Jesus had been performing miraculous deeds every day that are not mentioned for us. There, there would have been volumes and volumes of events that could have been recorded between chapters 5 and 6 that have not been preserved for us, at least in John's gospel. The other synoptic gospels do include some things that took place that, during that time. 
But there were many, many events that took place. It's because of those events that the people were following Jesus. They were curious. They were interested, intensely interested to see what Jesus was going to do because every day with Jesus brought something new, something amazing, something supernatural. From a purely human point of view, Jesus was the superlative entertainer because there was always something that caused your jaw to drop. What was he going to do next? Of course, from a divine point of view, all of these acts by Jesus, every single miracle, individually pointed to the fact that he and he alone was God in the flesh. No one could do what he did, but God be with him. So here we have a large crowd following Jesus. And it tells us in verse 1 that he went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or other, otherwise called the Sea of Tiberias. There's a number of names for that sea in northern Israel. Oh, we, we learned from um, Matthew's gospel and uh, Mark's gospel in particular. Um, well, Luke, Luke contributes a, a little bit here too. That Jesus uh, went away with his disciples to this northern, northeastern part of Galilee, up in, in the hills. There's, of course, this, the Sea of Galilee, as you remember, um, particularly on the, the west, the north, and the east side, um, the, the sea is in a bowl. It's below sea level. And so if you're leaving uh, the, 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 the shore of the Sea of Galilee, you're going uphill. Likely, where Jesus is retreating with his disciples is in the area that we call the Golan Heights today. In Jesus' day, that was remote. There was not a high population, and the population that was there was, was largely Gentile in nature. So Jesus is, is uh, withdrawing with his men and, and for, for two reasons. Uh, he had just received his disciples back from a ministry, a short-term ministry that he had sent them on. So he came, so they came to him with a report. They were busy uh, with ministry, tired from ministry, and so this was a time of reporting. It was a time of rest with, with Jesus. And also they find, we, we, we find out from the Synoptic Gospels that they had word that John the Baptist had been executed by Herod. So this is a time of reflection. Jesus pulls away with his men and the crowd learns where Jesus is, and they come to him. A large crowd followed, because, verse 2, they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. And here were these people with, 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 people, with, with friends and family members that were, were sick. No, no doctor, no medicine, no, no anything was of help. But Jesus, touching the sick, healed them 
instantly, perfectly, immediately. It got everyone's attention. So Jesus is up on the mountainside, verse 3. He sat down with his disciples. And then verse 4 tells us, now it was Passover, the feast of the Jews. Uh, that particular feast was near at hand. It wasn't Passover yet. But all of the Jews, uh, particularly male Jews, as was prescribed by Mosaic law, but they, they could have, if they had the opportunity, they could have traveled with their families. They would have been passing through Galilee, coming from the north, to Jerusalem. And they stopped off in Galilee because they heard that Jesus was there. And Jesus had this, this um, amazing ability, a gift, practice of, of, of healing, raising the dead, casting out demons. The crowds followed. They heard where he was, and they wanted to see the miracles. Verse 5, so Jesus, lifting up his eyes, seeing a large crowd was coming, he spoke to one of his men. Let me pause here for just a minute before I, I read that. Um, let, let, me, uh, let me refer to you, um, refer you to, to Matthew chapter 14. Don't, don't turn here, just let me read it, because I'll, I'll read a couple of verses, and you'll be going back and forth rapidly. And then you miss the point. Matthew 14, 14 reads, Jesus saw a large, large crowd, and he felt compassion for them and healed their sick. Mark chapter 6, verse 34. Jesus saw a large crowd, and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. So in the morning, while Jesus is up on this mountain... He sees the crowds coming to him. And he felt compassion for them. So he, he, he left the, the tents or whatever they had, their yurts, whatever they had, that they were sleeping in. And he went out to meet the people. And out of compassion, he healed their sick. He taught them. So after a morning of ministry, as Jesus continues to see the flocks, coming, the flocks of people coming to him like sheep without a shepherd, Jesus speaks to Philip. And he says, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This likely took place late morning, early afternoon. The crowds are still coming to Jesus. He's healing, he's teaching. He's very involved with the people. And he's aware of this burgeoning crowd that is gathering. Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? Now, why did he single out Philip? Well, we learn from chapter 1 that Philip is from the northeast part of Galilee where they are. He's a local. He would have known the establishments. He would have known the people. He, he would have had a knowledge of the 
infrastructure so that these people could have something to eat. Did Jesus ask Philip, where are we to buy food for all these people? Because he would have been in the know. Jesus was not looking for a solution to this problem. It, it tells us at, in, in, uh, in verse 6 that he knew what he was intending to do. Jesus wasn't looking for some answers. He wasn't looking for a suggestion. He was, according to verse 6, he was testing Philip. Jesus put a crisis, a problem, a divine demand in front of Philip. What are you going to do with that? Think of Abraham. Think of Moses. Think of King Ahaziah. Think of Job. There's a crisis, a problem, a divine demand. What will you do with it? How will you respond? Second page of your notes. Point number two. We talked about the solution as it was needed. We got a good, good crowd gathering here. How are we going to feed these people? Solution offered, point number two. Now, Philip um, approaches this problem that Jesus has presented to him from purely a materialistic point of view. Uh, he, he He has only one possible solution that he can come up with and it happens to be physical and material uh, dealing with a physical and material need philip answered in verse 7 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them for everyone to receive even a little Philip's solution is, well, we, 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 we really can't even buy bread. Uh, we, 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 don't, we, don't, we don't have this kind of money. Uh, a denarius was uh, the, the, the typical wage for a day laborer. So 200 of them, based on a six-day work week, means that we're talking eight months' worth of salary. And Philip says, Lord, if we, if we spend eight months of, 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 of my salary, I'm not even going to have, we're not even going to be able to buy enough bread to give them each a, a, a smackerel of, of, of food. This is, this is not going to work. And where are we going to buy it? It's not like we have a baker on retainer that is required to have a, 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 a certain a certain amount of bread available for us to come pick up. The, um, 
the other gospel accounts uh, help us out here a little bit, we, we, we learn that, that Jesus turns to the, um, uh, the other disciples and asks the same thing of them. Um, in uh, Matthew chapter 14, when it was evening, okay, so this is later in the day, when it was evening, the disciples came to Jesus and said, the disciples as a whole came to Jesus, this place is desolate, the hour is already late, so send the crowds away so that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. So early in the day, he's already spoken to, to Philip. And now he speaks to the whole disciples collectively as it is now evening. And he says to them, they do not need to go away, Matthew 14, verse 16. You give them something to eat. So now Jesus was first testing Philip. And now he's testing all of the disciples. And they all fail. They think only in materialistic terms. We have a group of people that are hungry. It's evening time. We have no place to feed them. We can't take them someplace. We can't buy enough food for them. You better just turn them loose and let them fend for themselves. That's the only option there is. Now let me pause here for just a second for maybe a, a, an applicational footnote. When we are problem solving, it is a good thing. It is a wise thing first to identify what the problem is. But then as you, as you look at a potential solution here, it's good to look at what resources I have at hand. Like King Amaziah, you might say, I don't have enough men to do battle against this army. Well, step number two in your problem solving, um, is there a way that I can secure the resources necessary, borrow them, buy them, in order to meet the need? If I don't have it on hand, is there another way that I can secure it? That's a good part of problem solving. But if we stop there, we are missing the greatest resources of uh, greatest resource available to us. We cannot stop right there. Now, before we go further, let me say that in the case of Philip, he was given a heads up earlier in the day that there was going to be a crisis, a problem, an impossible situation that had to be met. Jesus gave him some forewarning. Now it's the, the prudent person who looks at that, knowing that there's going to be a problem, and anticipates, how is it that I can address the problem that's coming? 
Procrastination is your nemesis. Well, in this particular case, we have the words of Philip. 200 denarii is insufficient, even to give people a little smackerel of food. And that's certainly not going to make them satisfied. They're still going to be hungry. We're kind of sunk, Jesus. No, they're not. Because they haven't looked at the greatest resource available to them. Well, there's another response to this particular crisis. Verse 8 tells us that another one of Jesus' disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, says to him, Here is a lad who has five barley loaves and two fish. Now, we don't know if Andrew went out and found the boy. If that's the case, then, then maybe Andrew doesn't get an F. Maybe he gets an E on his report card. E for effort. But his attitude stinks anyway. I think probably uh, this, this lad, as it's uh, translated in the New American Standard Text, uh, probably found Andrew. Now, we don't know that. But he found, he, he, uh, Andrew reports to Jesus, there's a, there's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish. The word lad could be translated little boy or child. Th- those are legitimate translations of the Greek word. And this lad, this little boy, has five loaves of bread. Now, the word bread is the traditional word for bread. It simply denotes water and flour mixed together and baked for food. But it doesn't say anything about size. When you think about a loaf of bread, you, you think about a sandwich loaf of bread. Maybe if it's good bread, you know, lots of stuff in it. Uh, maybe it'll be a couple pounds worth. This is not that. And when you think about a couple of fish, you might think of, oh, maybe, maybe he's got a couple of 20-pound uh, salmon here. No. This is a little lad, a little boy, a child. I envision a mom allowing her little man to go with uncle so-and-so, or, or maybe a next-door neighbor, to go hear Jesus and see the miracles he's going to do today. And so she packs him a lunch. And she sends him out the door. And this lunch contains, contains five loaves, barley loaves. Oh, let me explain Passover takes place in the spring after the barley harvest. So this is probably freshly ground, freshly baked barley loaves. Barley was a poor man's bread. The fish, let me stay on the, the loaves for just a moment. Imagining this to be uh, the, the lunch of a, of, of, a, of a little boy 
from his mom, it, it would be more accurate for us to picture five dinner rolls and two small fish, probably pickled fish like a sardine. We're talking about a, a lunch that could be held like this. That's all it is. And here this little boy hears about this need and he is willing to share what he has. Andrew's comment, verse 9. What are these for so many people? Andrew is embarrassed that he's taking this to Jesus. <laughs> Lord, Lord there, there's, there's this little boy, you know. I, and and he, he, he's a uh, sweet soul that he is. He's, he's willing to share his lunch. But honestly, Jesus... I'm, I, I know. I, I mean, are, this is, what, what's this? You, you see what's happening? He's looking at the problem from a purely materialistic point of view. He has no awareness. He, he, he doesn't factor in the spiritual component that is here. He has, he has no understanding of who it is that he is presenting this lunch to. It is Jesus, the Messiah. Point number three, a solution realized. So Jesus responds not to, uh, to Andrew or to the little boy or to Philip, but to the disciples as a whole, he says, have the people sit down. Now, the other synoptic uh, gospel writers inform us, I think it's Mark in particular, uh, that tells us that they were, to, they were instructed to, to have the people sit down in groups of 50 and 100. So, so these men, of course their wives or children are, are with them, uh, the, these men are grouped in, in groups of, of 50 or 100s. That does two things. It helps the distribution of the miracle that's going to happen take place efficiently. And it also gives the people that are there the opportunity to do a quick count of how many are there. Right? Jesus has the people sit down. Verse 10 into the verse tells us that there was a lot of grass in the place. Well, this is springtime of the year. Men sat down in number about 5,000. Matthew is very explicit that there are 5,000 men plus, about 5,000 men, plus women, plus children. A lot of people. Verse 11, Jesus then took the loaves and having given thanks dot, dot, dot. Let me push the pause button there for just a moment. You know, when, when my wife and I sit down for a meal and we pray together, 
um, or when we have other people over, when we have a, 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 a fellowship meal together here. Um, the, the meal, the, the, the food is already prepared. And, and sometimes the food is already plated up. But, but here Jesus is praying over a meal that has not even been prepared. There is nothing there. I wonder if, 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 if some of the people that were in that crowd were going, what is he doing? What, 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 is, what is he? He's giving thanks for the food. For what food? He's got a small little lunch for himself. Well, good for him. But what about us? We're hungry. Jesus took the loaves, having given thanks. He distributed to those who were seated. Likewise, also of the fish. I imagine the disciples <laughs> had eyes that were big as saucers, just like the people. Because Jesus prayed over the, the bread and, and, and the fish, and he put them in a basket. And he gave it to one of the disciples. And the disciple went to, to one of the groups of people, and, and and they began passing around that basket of bread. And, and then the next disciple received a basket of bread and fish, and, and there kept going these baskets of bread and fish. Where, how did, there's no trap doors. There's no smoke and mirrors. There's no sleight of hand. But, but it, it just kept coming. How, how did that happen? The end of verse 11 tells us that they ate as much as they wanted. We're not talking about a small smackerel. We're talking about a meal, albeit a meager and simple one. But as much bread and as much food, a fish as you wanted, it was yours. And it was there. Verse 12, when they were filled, Jesus said to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. Well, that's interesting. Why did he say that? So that nothing will be lost? How many, uh, how, how many basketfuls of fragments were left over? Next verse. Look at the next verse. There were 12, right? Well, there, there, were, there were many that um, in, in, throughout church history who said, well, these are, are uh, um, a, a reference to the, the, uh, the nation of Israel, 12 tribes of Israel. Oh, I, I suppose that's possible. But I think well, we're, we're still trying to explore what, what Jesus means, means at the end of verse 12 when he said, so that nothing is lost. What, what does that mean? Well, how many disciples were there? There were 12. And how many baskets of food were taken up? 12. What Jesus was communicating to his men, I'm, I'm confident of this, was not only does God provide for the crowds, the people, 
He sends the rain on the just and the unjust. But he provides specifically for his own. And each of these disciples had their own basket of bread to take home that night as a visible, edible remembrance of what Jesus did and what Jesus does. He takes care of his own. He provides for his own. He gave, even in the midst of unbelief. Jeremiah chapter 31. There is a wonderfully delicious verse. Jeremiah 31 verse 14. I will fill the souls of the priests with abundance and my people will be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. Lift up your eyes and see the salvation of the Lord. So Jesus provided for his men a basket of blessing. He didn't want anything to go to waste. He didn't want anything to be lost. Every morsel of bread had its, pl- had its place and its purpose. Point number four. The solution results. Verse 14 reads, When the people saw the sign which Jesus had performed, they said, This is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Now, there would have been many ways for, a few ways, for people to understand that particular statement. When they said that this is, this is surely the prophet who's come into the world, there would have been some who would say, well, he's a prophet like Elijah. He's a prophet like Elisha, who came performing miracles. And then there would be others that say, oh, no, he's more than that. He is the one who is coming in the likeness of Moses. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from among your countrymen. You shall listen to him. The Lord says, I will raise up a prophet among you, uh, among your countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he will speak to them all that I command him. There's some that would, in that in that. That, uh, in that crowd who said, no, this is, this is not just a prophet with a lowercase p. This is an uppercase prophet. This is Messiah, the anointed of God. Well, those who had a rather skewed understanding of who Jesus was wanted to make Jesus king wanted to force them to be king, 
wanted to force him to be the one who would be their miracle worker. Hey, um, it's, it's a popular thing. Let's, let's, let's have the government provide for everybody's food. Hey, you know what? If, if we work it right, the government will provide us free health care too. Let's make Jesus our king. Jesus never bowed to the desires and the demands of men. Well, by way of application, I want you to think again about that crisis, that problem, that divine demand Abraham faced. How did he respond? He placed his boy on the altar and was giving him back to God. What about Moses? He was a stutterer, and he knew he was a stutterer. But he had forgotten that God made him a stutterer. And yet, he took that mouth of his that didn't work according to his desires and faithfully served as God's mouthpiece before Pharaoh. He placed his mouth on the altar, if you will, willing to give God what he had. What about Amaziah? He still had a smaller army. But he sent the mercenaries home, and he forgot about the money that he spent in order to secure their services. And God blessed him with victory over the Edomites. What about you? What's the crisis? What's the problem? What's the impossible situation you're facing? Are you going to be foolish and presume that the only resources that you have are what you possess or what you can secure by borrowing or buying? Or will you go to that one presenting what you have even if it's a small little small little lunch, if that's all you have, will you give that to God and trust Him to multiply it to meet the need? Consider the, um, the life of Elizabeth Elliot. She writes this. If the only thing you have to offer is a broken heart, 
you offer a broken heart. So in a time of grief, the recognition that is material for sacrifice has been a, a great strength for me. Realizing that nothing I have, nothing I am will be refused on the part of Christ, I simply give it to him as the little boy gave Jesus his five loaves and two fishes. With the same feeling of the disciples when they said, what is the good of that for such a crowd? Naturally, in almost anything I offer to Christ, my, action, my reaction would be, what is the good of that? The point is, the use Jesus makes of it is none of my business. It's his business and his blessing. So this grief, this loss, this suffering, this pain, this crisis, this problem, this need, whatever it is, she writes, which at the moment is God's means of testing my faith and bringing me to a recognition of who he is, that is the thing I can offer. Who is it that you believe Jesus to be? Your response to, to, to that need, that crisis, that, that demand, that, that problem, your response reveals what do you think of Jesus? Will you trust him? Will you give to him all that you have that he can do what only he can do? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the preservation of your word and the clarity of that word to remind us of your strength your power, your wisdom, your testing. Find us faithful, dear Father. Find us turning to you. Find us kneeling at your cross and placing upon the altar all that we have and all that we are including our fears, our needs, our doubts, our sorrows, our weaknesses. Then allow us the joy of seeing you multiply what we give for your glory. We pray in the name of this glorious one. Amen.